Today's episode of Market Talk is brought to you by Growmark FS. Keeping up with the latest in ag is a challenge, to say the least, but there are experts nearby ready to help. You'll find them at your local FS. You can trust them to bring you customized agronomic grain and energy solutions bored of the latest thinking. That's because FS specialists receive continuous training that keeps them current on the latest trends, practices, and technologies. So you'll get local expertise that's both exceptional and up-to-date. Visit FSSystem.com to learn how FS is bringing you what's next. Bringing you the ag information you need, this is Market Talk. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. And welcome into Market Talk Live once again from the Cattle Industry Convention at NCBA Trade Show in New Orleans, Louisiana. Day number two. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Jesse Allen. We've got another busy show on tap here today. We're going to talk to Caitlin Glover from NCBA at the Public Lands Council in just a minute. Also coming up here on the show, Justin Sherrard with Robobank going to join us to talk about global trade issues, sustainability issues, and more. We're going to talk markets with Brian Doherty of Total Farm Marketing. And we'll wrap the show. We're going to hopefully be chatting with Greg Haynes, CEO of the Cattlemen's Beef Board. So definitely a lot to get to on today's program. And joining us now as we are here at the Cattle Industry Convention and NCBA Trade Show, Caitlin Glover, Executive Director of the Public Lands Council, NCBA. Caitlin, great to catch up with you again. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. This has been a great week here in New Orleans. Uh, as we as we wrap up the week, we've had some really productive policy conversations. So it's, uh, it's always heartening for me to be able to take good messages back to Washington as we gear up for another uh, hectic year. Having those discussions, talking with ranchers from across the country, and of course focusing on all the different things that are out there impacting us uh, on the farm and ranch. And let's talk about a few of those issues that you're working on in D.C. Uh, I think just top of mind as well, the lesser prairie chicken issues. And I know there's been some recent movement on that. Can you get us up to speed on just the latest with that situation? Ab- absolutely. So, you know, when we look at the lesser prairie chicken, uh, a lot of your listeners are, are going to know the long and storied history of, of the will-they-won't-they they of an Endangered Species Act listing and, and voluntary conservation plans and, and all of the, the things that have happened really over the last 10 or 20 years. Where well, we saw the Fish and Wildlife take some action over the last six months, uh, they decided to establish, go through the regulatory process to establish a two distinct population, population segments, one in the north and one in the south. Uh, and the one in the north, they've decided to list as threatened, the, the one in the south. Uh, they, they decided to list as endangered. And so really what we're talking about is a massive regulatory ESA expansion for Oklahoma and Nebraska and Kansas and Texas and New Mexico um, in, in a really, really challenging time. You know, it's, it's lesser prairie chicken conservation focused, but really the impacts are on those farms and ranches who have been the backbone of conservation for the bird, for the habitat and for the larger ecosystem for, for generations. Well, and I think about those issues, too, when, you know, it that overregulation on our farms and ranches when, you know, someone telling a cattle producer what they can and can't do with their herd on their land because of the lesser prairie chicken being endangered. 
to me, it doesn't make sense because our cattle producers, they know the land they're working, not someone sitting somewhere else. You know, that that's exactly right. And, and, you know, one of my mentors once told me that it's incredibly hard to legislate or regulate flexibility, right? You want to be able to provide a, a framework that, that works generally. But, but often, you know, the federal government tends to try to get too specific, overly prescriptive. And that's where you see that undue regulatory burden. You see it in the lesser prairie chicken, but you also see it in a lot of other endangered species uh, that, that really the impact is felt by those landowners, those active conservationists, those stewards of the land um, who are really that, that primary regulatory and, and regulated community. Mm-hmm. We, we see that you know, in lesser prairie chicken, but that is really going to be front and center in Washington, D.C. this year as the Endangered Species Act turns 50. Uh, so we've had 50 years to, to demonstrate that, you know, what was a, really a well-intended uh, piece of legislation really needs some, some improvement. Lesser prairie chicken is a prime example, uh, but unfortunately for for the act and and for you know for a lot of cattle producers, uh, there are many more examples where we we just need to to fix that framework. What are some of those examples? What are some of the other issues surrounding ESA that that you guys are looking at with NCBA and the Public Lands Council? So so there there are a wide variety. So you know the the Biden administration has said that they are going to uh, revise. Rules that the Trump administration also revised in the last five years. Uh, a variety of Endangered Species Act rules. Three additional rules are expected this year um, to revise things like how critical habitat is designated, um, how the the Fish and Wildlife Service determines ha- determines habitat in the first place. Uh, we we also have uh, you know some some legislative interest as well. Congress loves a good oversight hearing, and so you know a, an anniversary is a is a great opportunity. But but you see a lot of interest, especially in the House uh, to take steps to improve the act. You know, not to get too too down in the weeds here, but w- what we really see is that you know the act was a, a three-part uh, process: mm-hmm. identification and listing as thing one. The second part was to develop a recovery plan and implement it, and the third part was then to delist that species once that species was was recovered, once step two was successful. And it's really the finishing of step two and and execution of step three that has has failed over time. And so, as NCBA, as PLC, our other partners in Washington, we're focused not only on the improvement of step two and three through the legislative process, but also making sure that new regulations uh, like the administration is going to promulgate this year uh, don't cause additional harm or additional uncertainty for cattle producers, for for landowners, um, and even for the agency Mm -hmm. itself, right? Sure. Well, and I know as well, you guys with NCBA and PLC do a great job staying on top of these issues and, and working with our, our farmers and ranchers across the country. But as, as ranchers in the countryside, how can they have their voices heard and, you know, make issues known that may may not be known as we work through this year and beyond? Well, well Jesse, I think you're acting, asking the right question in exactly the right place. Uh, participation in organizations like NCBA or PLC sharing those those lived experiences, those personal stories, and not only of conservation, but demonstrating those investments is absolutely key. The strongest part of my job in Washington is being able to talk uh, about the work that Mark or Tim or Robbie did uh, on their operation to benefit one species or the other, but also to demonstrate a, a whole e- ecological health approach. 
I, I always say that I have the best job in Washington because I talk, get to talk about the value of grazing, that the contributions that ranchers and their livestock make on a daily basis, not only for their species, but also for the, the, the larger ecosystem health. Ranchers continuing to do what they do, participating in the process, submitting comments, that is the best way to continue to demonstrate that commitment. Got just about a minute. Any other final thoughts you have for us before we run out of time? Well, so, you know, as we look at the year ahead, it's not just ESA that's on the docket. You know, we're going to be relitigating uh, quite literally, but also in, in conversation, uh, the waters of the United States concept. Mm -hmm. uh, some migratory bird things are, are going to come up for, for your, your folks who may know about BLM and Forest Service land in the West. We have uh, some grazing rules, revisions that are coming down the line. And just like the lesser prairie chicken, their neighbor to the West, the greater sage grouse is going to be front and center as well. It's going to be a heavy regulatory year. And so producers' involvement is absolutely key. Well, we'll be definitely staying in touch and uh, staying on top of these issues. Appreciate a few minutes of your time, Caitlin. Thanks for joining us here in New Orleans. Thanks so much. All right, coming up next here on Market Talk as we continue our coverage in New Orleans, we're going to talk about global trade flows surrounding the beef industry. We're also going to talk a little bit about sustainability and what the future holds for sustainability in the beef industry. Justin Sherrard, Global Protein Analyst with Bank, he joins us next. We're back with more Market Talk on the way right after this. Stay up to date and listen to past episodes online at markettalkag.com. Now, back to Market Talk with Jesse Allen. And joining us now here during the Cattle Industry Convention in New Orleans, Global Strategist Animal Protein with Robo Bank, Justin Sherard is with us. Justin, great to have you uh, join us here on the show today. It's uh, good to catch up with you in New Orleans. I hope you're doing well. Great, thanks, Jesse. Good to be with you, and um, exciting times in the in the cattle industry. Um, where would you rather be this week? Exactly, a lot of conversations happening here uh, in New Orleans surrounding the cattle industry, and there's a, a lot for us to cover too. And I think I want to start. Uh, one of the big topics we're hearing a lot about is the discussion around trade, around yep. global trade, U.S. beef production. We've seen the new reports now: beef production down in the U.S. We're hearing just a lot of talk, and I'd love to get your thoughts overall on just how this global trade dynamic is kind of setting up here as we start 2023, because I equate it to we've seen a bit of a reshuffling of the deck chairs, so to speak, trade partners, et cetera. So just walk us through just to kind of start thousand foot view. How are things setting up in your eyes, Justin? Jesse, I'd say there's four big blocks that are moving around. I don't like the analogy of shuffling the deck chairs because it sounds like the Titanic and then that sounds like bad news and I don't think it is bad news. Mm -hmm. But we do see a reorganisation of global trade that's taking place. The four big blocks, first of all US, we know that beef production is down. What we're less certain about is where the, sh where the balance is going to be in reduction of domestic consumption and reduction in exports. You'll see both both will be down because production is down, but exactly how that balance um, is set this year. And I think importantly, remember US beef production, it's not a 2023 story, it's a 23, 24, 25, 26 story in terms of where we see beef production going. So that's the first piece. How much is the US going to consume? How much is it going to export? And who fills the gap? Because U.S. beef consumption has been outstanding the mm -hmm. past few years, 
US beef exports have been outstanding as well the, the past few years. So you've probably got three other blocks in that you've got to think about to, to get a handle on the answer. The first is Brazil, the world's second biggest beef producer, massive beef exporter, highly focused on Asian markets in particular. Not really much access into the key high value markets of Korea and Japan at the moment huge amount of trade from Brazil to China. In fact, over half of Brazil's beef exports go to China at the moment. Um, I think in, at the end of last year, we probably clocked in around 55, 56%. So huge dependence on China's ongoing beef import demand there from Brazil. Different product, by the way, important distinction. It's a different product. Brazil is very keen to get product into the US, manufacturing beef to fulfill gaps in the market here. Brazil does not have a free trade agreement with the US, so it competes in the other category. It's only 65,000 tonnes without a tariff applied to it. And I'm throwing a whole lot of numbers here at mm -hmm. you and talking quickly. You tell me if there's too much detail here, but, but it's important to understand some of the detail because Brazil will probably fill that quota it's probably already full now, end of January. Maybe in the mid early February it'll be full. And then they start paying 26% import tariff on, on beef. So they're wanting to fill that. And then there's a question of where they go next. Brazil's beef production up in 2023. Brazil's domestic beef consumption at best flat in 2023. So they've got more to export this year. Mm -hmm. So that's Brazil. That's the second piece. Then we talk about Australia. Australia's been down and out of, um, down on beef production, down on exports the past few years, but Q4 last year, we really started to see the momentum shift to an increase in production there and an increase in exports as well. <clears throat> that will continue in 2023. They'll be up and more aggressive in export markets. They've got some geopolitical tensions with China that they've got to sort out to, to get into that market, but they will be looking to fulfill any shortage in the market here in the US. Mm -hmm. So that's Australia. And then you've got China. What's China going to do? Sure. China recorded another year of record beef imports in 2022. In fact, up 15%, sorry. Yes, they were up 15% in, mm -hmm. in 2022. The US was up 24% in its exports to China in 2022. But we think China will ease off this year. I think the headwinds at the moment associated with the end of the COVID regime there and the policies and restrictions, et cetera, will make it very difficult. I kind of feel there's so much going on and I get excited about talking yeah. about it, Jesse, that I'm wondering if it's going to come across um, to you and the listeners in a, in a way that they can understand. But we do really have this reordering of global trade flows at the moment. Critical issue how much is the US going to export and yes. how much is the US going to import to fulfill the, the, the gap that's created and where is that coming from? Mm -hmm. Very interesting to watch. I think Australia's in a very good position. And I was going to say that was going to be my next question is, you know, what choices do packers here in the US make domestic versus export? Do we have to import? I, I know that's a part of the story as well, Justin. What choice do packers make? I mean, when you're uncertain about things, you follow the money. Where's exactly. the money? The margin is likely to be best here in the, in the domestic market. So fulfilling domestic consumption requirements is likely to represent the best margin for the US packer. But 
We're not necessarily talking like for like when we talk about domestic consumers and export consumers. We're exporting cuts where we're getting better prices in export markets, for example. And so that's also the balance that the packer will, will, will look to fulfill. Overall, there's less beef, so both will have to give a little bit. But I think that probably the margin is going to be best and the focus is probably going to be on the domestic consumer here in the US to really try and limit um, imports, but also it's really just that margin maximization game. And they're good at that. That's what their job is. Mm -hmm. Fantastic thoughts there. I want to shift our conversation to sustainability a little sure. bit. That's another big topic we're hearing about here at the Cattle Industry Convention. I know last night uh, you spoke during a, a dinner with our friends from Atlantico uh, talking about this topic, sustainability, carbon credits, etc. You laid out some interesting thoughts, though, when it comes to sustainability. I, obviously, there's one piece that some farmers, ranchers still trying to understand it, trying to understand carbon markets, but then also your thoughts about what is going to be the future here. You brought up some interesting points about access to markets, access to finance as well, tied to sustainability. Can you talk about that a little bit and just some of your thoughts with this whole sustainability conversation? Sure. Jesse, I think um, first point I'd make is actually that this is where we should have the conversation about access. We shouldn't be having the conversation at the moment, in my mind, about carbon credits. Yes, there is a carbon credit conversation going on. It may represent some attractive new revenue streams for ranchers in terms of how they manage land and how they think about storing carbon on the land, etc. There may be an opportunity over there. But I don't think that's the main game at the moment. I do think it's the main distraction, but it's not the main game. The main game is how we continue to get beef through supply chains towards consumers in the context of food retail companies, food service companies, and food manufacturing companies who are all in the process of making commitments to reduce greenhouse gas emissions for their whole supply chain. If you're a food retailer, your greenhouse gas emissions are all in your supply chain. Okay, five to 10% are about your own distribution centers, your own footprint of stores, your own operations, etc. Only five to 10% of your total emissions. 90, 95% is what's happening upstream in the supply chain. And these guys who may never have stepped foot on a ranch are making commitments about what they're going to do, which have implications for the whole chain. If you want to participate in that chain, and we all do, then you've got to understand that the rules around market access are changing. And the packer is the one who's actually going to have to fulfill that requirement and prove that they are delivering food, product, beef with lower greenhouse gas emissions through to retail and food service. But that then also requires them to have a different conversation and a different engagement with, with, the, with the feeder, the feeder, the cow-calf guys, etc. At the moment, we don't really have those business models where we've got supply chains joined up like that all the way. Mm -hmm. Sure, you've got some custom feeding programs, etc. But even on custom feeding programs, you may not be linked all the way back to the cow-calf guy. So I think that whole market access thing is really where the main story is on sustainability. And by the way, it's not a 2023 story. You know, it's, it's about how we position to fulfill those needs and keep beef flowing through supply chains, keep consumers engaged, keep the food retail companies and the food service companies thinking beef, 
and we want them to keep thinking beef. It's a it's a safe, nutritious, sustainable product. But to, we've got to we've got to play along with the commitments that they're making. It's a conversation we need to have. A conversation we're going to continue to have for sure. Appreciate the time and insight, global strategist, animal protein with Bravo Bank, Justin Sherard. Thanks for joining us here at the Cattle Industry Convention, sir. We'll talk to you again soon. Pleasure, Jesse. Thanks for having me. And again, that's Justin Sherard with Robo Bank. Coming up next, we'll continue here from the Cattle Industry Convention in New Orleans. We'll talk markets with Brian Doherty of Total Farm Marketing. Back with more market talk right after this. Why are more people heating their homes with FS Propane? Because it's better to work with a company that lives and works in the same community that you do. When it comes to the comfort of your family, trust FS. We have highly trained service professionals who monitor your system for proper operation, safety, and maximum efficiency. So you can be sure that FS Propane will leave your family with a good, warm feeling all season long. Contact your local FS Propane specialist today. FS Propane feels like home. Visit fspropane.com for more information. Keeping you informed with the latest market information for your operation. This is Market Talk. Now, back to Jesse Allen. And joining us now as we talk about the market trade action we saw on Thursday as we broadcast live in New Orleans. He joins us from his office in Wisconsin. Brian Doherty, Senior Market Advisor at Total Farm Marketing, is our guest analyst here today. Brian, always good to catch up with you, sir, and uh, hope the week's going well. Looked like a solid recovery in the soy complex on Thursday and a good day in the livestock trade, too. You bet. Yeah, a lot of back and forth lately, and beans did have a solid recovery today, up 14 today in the in the March contract, closing at 1534 and that's after losing 17 and three quarters yesterday. So the net of the last two days is about three cents lower, three to four cents lower. Uh, very interesting point on the charts, because if you're a chartist, we're in this nice, what we call channel line of prices that are working higher. Uh, but on this last recovery, we have yet to take out the, the, the high from mid, mid-January, which was 1548 and a half. So the significance of that is right now we're forming, if you're a chartist, what's called a head and shoulders formation, forming the right shoulder. If prices don't break into that high and yet and then fall apart, then all of a sudden you've got a negative looking chart with a downside objective and it's eerily reminiscent of how the charts look back in June when they were reaching their highs and then fell apart, same type of formation. So something to be watched for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, corn, not a great looking day, despite a good export sales number of 67 million bushels, Jess, uh, but had a good thing going this morning, four or five higher and finished five and three quarters lower in March and December gave up a penny and a quarter. So kind of a disappointing day if you're a, a little bit supportive or bullish corn. Yeah, I think overall, you mentioned to me the export sales before we uh, went live here. Fairly good day, core beans. Um, but, you know, looking across this corn market, just kind of a struggle. Maybe uh, I know yesterday we saw some spread, intermarket spreading, maybe a little bit of that today. I just wonder, uh, you know, what the what the trajectory is in this corn market now. I know 690 has been overhead resistance in this March contract, Brian. It has, and it, it held again here in this last go around. So when you look at the chart, it's, it's a kind of a precarious chart because if you connect the low, from summer and then the low from fall, you get this nice line and then the market uh, came back down and tested that low in early January and and it's holding well above that. And then if you connect the high from summer and then the highs from fall, 
uh, so you end up with kind of this big wedge. And the market's actually breaking out to the top side of the wedge and holding above now what's called the downward line. Consequently, you got a nice looking chart, but it's not breaking that top side. And that's getting concerning, especially when you have days like today that you only get so many chances. And if it doesn't happen, then you run the risk that uh, a lack of news or negative news comes along or a report. We got a report next Wednesday. So so the market will start to gear up for that on the 8th. Mm-hmm. I noticed as well, crude oil has been slipping the last few days. We got a little bit of uh, pressure there again on Thursday, $75 range. I wonder how much that's maybe weighing into the commodity space, into the grains and oilseeds, Brian. Well, it's usually not supportive. Uh, it, you know, as energies go, a lot of times the grains go, and when energies really had their run last year, grains were right with it. So there, there is that. And when you look at something like the crush in soybeans, uh, we're not selling a lot of soybean oil. We're selling mm-hmm. meal, we're selling beans, but not a lot of oil. So that's kind of an anchor on the market. And if the energy market's not really leading the way, you know, that's a concern. Um, yesterday, the Biden administration talked about uh, uh, some study or something indicating kind of the green light, the drill in the northern slope of Alaska, which to most of us, the kind of caught us off guard. We thought that was off, off hand, you know, off limits. Apparently not. And when you're um, when you're looking at uh, you know tightening energy supplies in a war, maybe there's there's some merit behind thinking about moving to those oil fields. But anyway, that was in the news. Kind of had a down push on energy yesterday and probably again today. Well, I think as well here in the grains, uh, we, we talk about risk management a lot, corn, beans, et cetera, wheat markets here. Just with some of the back and forth, we kind of have the weather market with South America as well. As we watch the dryness in Argentina and the wetness in Brazil, the, the harvest delays there. I feel like some of that back and forth ebb and flow here day to day right now. Uh, just wonder risk management wise still feels like a good spot to to get some floors locked in at least or get some things moving, whether old or new crop, Brian. Yeah, you know, we just really haven't changed at all. Uh, you know, when you look at like new crop prices. So so when I say change at all, we're at five ninety-five in December corn today. We're at five ninety-five on December corn on January sixth. We're at five ninety-five in December corn on December sixth. So we're 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 just you know, around the slippery slope. I I want to sort of reiterate again, if you want to do yourself maybe, uh, I don't want to say a favor, but give yourself a visual, look at the, the long-term charts. Uh, if you don't have them, let me know. I'll get them to you. But of corn and soybeans, they're high-priced. They're mm-hmm. high-priced commodities. And, and I've used this analogy that something like corn, uh, Jesse, you and I and 10 other people might be in a room, we're all bullish corn. But none of us are buying, so mm-hmm. it, it just sits there. And it, so there's a bullish argument, but nobody's stepping up and buying. And at some point, somebody says, "Well, I'm going to sell if it's not going up." And the next thing you know, you're you're on this again slippery slope. And that's that's my concern. It's only February second. There's a whole lot of weather in South America and the U.S. You know, in front of us. But I also want to you know reiterate that there could be one scenario that develops and that is we just kind of don't rally at all. We just stay flat, work lower, work lower, and work lower as we plant a crop and then if we have good weather. So mm-hmm. 
I want to talk a little bit on the livestock side. Cattle hogs, very solid day there on Thursday. I know in the cattle market, we had the cattle inventory report earlier this week. That's been a factor. What are your thoughts in the livestock trade here as we are uh, working through this week? Boy, you know, we've talked about it, talked about it. And the supply side, it's arguably as bullish as I can ever recall because you're just, you're shrunk the herd and you're not shrinking the population. Um, mm-hmm. And you got this nice big inverted head and shoulders formation on, on the chart that that's an upward sloping chart. And that's a formation that would argue that, you know, you might have another, oh, $3, $4 to go to fulfill that. So, so can we get to 170? If you asked me a week ago and things look a little softer, I thought, well, given inflation and sort of the economic concerns about not only U.S., but worldwide recession, I doubt it. Now, all of a sudden, you got some spark. You got some life in the market. Doesn't look like it's topped yet, and it looks good. I just don't know if the consumer can continue to pay higher price in the in the supermarket, and um, maybe they can. Good market, good supply or tight supplies, feeder cattle, new highs. Everything looks pretty, pretty supportive there. On the hog side, I know there's been some talks watching the charts, maybe a double bottom, uh, obviously a good day Thursday. What are you seeing in the hog market? Is there a double bottom maybe shaping up there, Brian? Yeah, we had a, a good close today, and, and this thing really kind of got hammered pretty hard yesterday and just as impressively kind of bounced off that low, and then today had a good follow-through day. So. So I would argue there is a double bottom on the charts. Um, I'd argue the market might be viewed as oversold. Um, and uh, we're starting to maybe see some crossover in stochastics that would argue that if you're going to take a shot at buying hogs, you do it sooner than later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A couple more things real quick before we uh, wrap up today. Dairy market, I see a lot of green on the screen there Thursday. What's your summation of uh, how dairy trades looking this week? Uh, well, still pretty tough. I mean, today was up. Yesterday was new contract lows, but not the worst finish. And some follow through the top side today. So the overall trend remains down. I will say if you're kind of arguing for some sort of signal, what's a signal? Well, maybe at the bottom of a trend, you get a lower morning firmer afternoon, higher higher than the previous day in a, in a stronger close. That was the um, the uh, April contract yesterday. That was um, that was a pretty good signal. Same thing in the May contract. So you're starting to get maybe this idea of uh, a bottom forming. Now we saw this same kind of signal on the 23rd and the market kind of fell fat at, flat after that. So so one day doesn't make a market, but a pretty nice reversal yesterday, firmer close today. Um, still dealing with the idea that low, uh, lower demand, more supply. Um, I don't know, I think we're low enough in milk, but we'll see if the market buys that bias. Fantastic. Brian, uh, any other final thoughts? Anything else you wanna reiterate for us here before we wrap it up today? Again, I think I'll just go back to if you're a corn or soybean producer, and you know where prices are, um, you know, waiting it out for better might work. Uh, I would certainly argue to get started on 2023. Hope to be wrong, sell some more, get an average price built up there on more bushels. Sometimes what happens, people wait, they're right, the market rallies, then they start to sell, and it drops so fast, that's all they sell. So, you know, don't be afraid to kind of, 
uh, start dribbling some of this out. Um, these are these are good prices. History hasn't been kind to holding bull markets for extended years. Fantastic. Well, of course, if folks have questions, want to talk with you about things, I know they can reach you very easily there. Phone call, email, many ways to get in touch with you at Total Farm Marketing, isn't there? There sure are. And uh, any of those ways work. Phone call is 800-334-9779. Email is brian with a Y at totalfarmmarketing.com or just look us up on the web, uh, www.totalfarmmarketing.com. Brian, always a pleasure, sir. Thanks for joining me for a little bit here today. And I know uh, we'll look forward to talking to you next week. Have a great weekend. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you, sir. You bet. And once again, appreciate his time and insight. Brian Doherty, Senior Market Advisor at Total Farm Marketing, joining us here today. Coming up, we're going to wrap up here from day two of the Cattle Industry Convention and NCBA Trade Show in New Orleans. We'll sit down with Greg Haynes, CEO of the Cattlemen's Beef Board, back with more Market Talk on the way right after this. The market news and analysis you need here on Market Talk. Now, back to Jesse Allen. And joining us now here at the Cattle Industry Convention, we are joined by Greg Haynes, CEO of the Cattlemen's Beef Board. Greg, always uh, great to catch up with you, sir. How's things going? It's going good. Great to see you, Jesse. Hope all's well with you as well. Yeah, things are good. Things are good. And uh, we got to jump in and talk here. New calendar year 2023. Mm -hmm. Let's just start and and look at how things are, are lining up for this year. Policy priorities, things you guys are looking at starting off a new year as the Cattlemen's Beef Board. What's some of the things? that are top of mind for you? Uh, A lot. So we started our fiscal year in October, so we've got kind of the first quarter of that uh, under wraps, but we ended up uh, 2022, I think, very positive in a good position. If you look at beef demand, you know, Mm -hmm. it's still at some of the highest levels it's been in 30 years. And I think moving into 2023, that's going to be very important. I think we all see that beef prices are going to be increasing as kind of the herb uh, liquidation maybe stops and we start rebuilding. Uh, so that's going to be a challenge out there. And so I think we're with the programs that we have, uh, the demand we've created, I think that's going to keep that um, demand for beef there, even at higher prices. So I'm pretty optimistic going forward with that. And it's been good today. We've seen um, all the contractors. We have nine contractors that are doing programs for us. They gave updates on what they're doing. It was just really exciting to see all the different areas that the checkoff is making some impact and and influencing, you know, decision makers and consumers and things like that. So I think we're on on a very positive trend. Now, you mentioned some of the herd liquidation, and now we're going to be in this rebuilding mode. And I wonder, does that have an impact on checkoff dollars? And if so, are you guys, are there any steps you're taking to maybe mitigate any impact on checkoff dollars? Yeah, as you know, with, uh, you know, checkoff is collected every time an animal is sold. So as we get into that rebuilding period, A, we'll probably have, you know, fewer cattle after we've gone, ca- fewer animals <laughs> after we've gone through the liquidation. And you may get less turnover too. So that means less checkoff collections. So we're forecasting checkoff collections to be much tighter, maybe towards the end of this uh, fiscal year, but definitely going into 24 and 25. And so we've been planning for that. Last year, collections were fairly good, as a resu- you know, unfortunately, as a result of this liquidation. But we've held back some of those funds, knowing that it's going to be getting tighter and tougher. So we're planning that, depending on how the situation kind of shakes out, we've got that ready so that we can infuse that into the 
annual promotion budgets that we have and try to keep that fairly level so we aren't anticipating any big you know, sudden drops or anything in the ability to do programming. So this will make it much easier to keep all these things going, you know, ensure we're, that we're getting that reach constantly. And for the contractors, just be able to have a little better ability to plan and, uh, you know, know that the things that they're, that they're putting out are going to be able to be completed. Whereas if you don't know or you don't have those funds, it's like all of a sudden you may have to pull the plug on, on programs in the middle, which doesn't help anybody. And I'm sure things like that you know, fall under strategic planning. I know you guys have done a lot of that with the Cattlemen's Beef Board here in recent months. Can you talk about some other things that are maybe underneath your strategic planning moving forward here through this year? Yeah, we actually just put together a brand new CBB strategic plan um, last summer. So we've been working on implementing that. And I think kind of some of the underlying goals that we have that are really are how can we fully leverage and get the biggest impact, you know, from all the checkoff dollars we have. With this tightening or the challenge of fewer dollars, we've got to make sure every dollar is getting the most. And so we're really looking at that on how we can leverage the materials and information that are created from one contractor across all contractors and across the entire industry. Uh, we're just looking at how we can increase, you know, that kind of collaboration, communication, and again, you know, we're, we may even have to look at like how do you how do you engage outside organizations into like having a stake into the programs as well. So I think, you know, working with our contractors and leveraging that and maximizing it, and then trying to leverage that with other industry groups is going to be really important going forward. As as everybody, I think, is finding you know tighter and tighter resources, just you know, with the checkoff and the economy as a whole. So that's going to be a challenge everywhere, and so. We want to try and leverage that. Well, and I think as well, all the work that you guys do at CBB when it comes to the checkoff and working with the industry and producers, et cetera, but also I know you brought up the demand side for you know high quality beef, even at higher prices. I think about the consumer side, the beef, it's what's for dinner campaign, et cetera. Mm -hmm. There's so much that the checkoff does as well on the consumer side that I think is, is very important, Greg. Definitely. Like I said, that whole beef it's what's for dinner campaign is really you know targeted towards those consumers and there's a lot of different aspects of that too you know we've got big big type programs here we're going to be doing the daytona 300 beef mm -hmm. it's what's for dinner race here in a couple weeks and that just has huge reach not only to people who are at that race but you know online and you know the carryover social media and news releases and everything kind of tied to that so that gets a lot of that reach out there um you know just the website and the ability to be able to like target different consumer groups. And I think as we're talking about, you know, beef prices going up, we're going to have to be able to really develop and showcase a lot of these, you know, less expensive cuts and how do you prepare those? So I think the checkoff has done a great job of, of developing this whole arsenal of recipes and cooking methods that you can, you can use with any types of cuts. And so there's going to be more as families, you know, some families are going to have to kind of tighten their belt and look for uh, cheaper alternative beef items, there's going to be you know, a lot of information that they have to be able to utilize that. You know, people who still mm -hmm. are going to have that demand for the higher end, that information's there. So we really want to be able to cover that and hit all the different kind of consumer segments that way. As always, we appreciate the time and insight and get a chance to talk with you. And I know we'll do it again in the future. Greg Haynes, Great. CEO of the Cattlemen's Beef Board, thanks for joining us today. Yep. Thank you, Jesse. Appreciate it.
And we appreciate the time with Greg Haynes, CEO of the Cattlemen's Beef Board, joining us here today live at the Cattle Industry Convention. Earlier in the show, Caitlin Glover, Executive Director of Public Lands Council and NCBA Natural Resources. Justin Sherrard with Bank joining us as well. And Markets with Brian Doherty of Total Farm Marketing. We'll be back tomorrow for another round here at the Cattle Industry Convention and NCBA Trade Show in New Orleans. For now, though, I'm your host, Jesse Allen. Have a fantastic rest of your day. Thanks for tuning in to Market Talk. Why are more people heating their homes with FS Propane? Because it's better to work with a company that lives and works in the same community that you do. When it comes to the comfort of your family, trust FS. We have highly trained service professionals who monitor your system for proper operation, safety, and maximum efficiency. So you can be sure that FS Propane will leave your family with a good, warm feeling all season long. Contact your local FS Propane specialist today. FS Propane feels like home. Visit fspropane.com for more information.